My conversation today is with naturalist and author Paul Crefell. Paul is the author of the classic book Seeing Nature, which previous guest Fernanda Ibarra named as a primary inspiration for the philosophy of the hollow chain cryptocurrency project. After that episode, I picked up a copy of Seeing Nature and found it to be an illuminating and inspiring text, exploring similar territory to Rob Berbea's work with The Imaginal and Robert Adams' work uh, on philosophical inquiry as a, a kind of training in perceptual transformation, where Rob made his discovery through contemplative practice and Robert through philosophical study. Paul made his through careful observation of the natural world in his time as a park ranger and as a lifelong naturalist. Paul is a gem of a human, and I couldn't be more pleased with this conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Without further ado, here's Paul Crefell. Welcome back to Emerge. In this episode of the show, I'm speaking with Paul Crefell. Paul is an author, a naturalist, and a teacher uh, who I mostly know through his two books, the first, Seeing Nature, and the latter, more recent book, Roaming Upward, which is free and available online. I'll give you a link in the show note for those who feel uh, interested or inspired to, to take a look at that. Um, and you know, I, Paul is an interesting character in that he's one of those folks who on the show who I just find really difficult to kind of describe the work that he does. It, it covers so many different domains and dimensions of the human experience. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, Paul explores our relationship with nature and the natural world, both as an end in itself as well as a doorway or a portal into understanding a variety of phenomena in our world, everything from governance to culture and to education. I know that for Paul, education is a particular um, area of interest. He has created one of the first charter schools in the, in, in I, I think in California, uh, the Chrysalis School, which is a fascinating uh, space where where teachers are given uh, much more mm, autonomy to engage with their students and to uh, explore what it means to educate our children for uh, the future. And so I'm really excited to have Paul on the show. And Paul, the, the first question I have for you is, is um, you know, I, I don't know that I did a very good job of describing your approach, your work, um, but I'm curious how you would describe what it is that you do and your your approach and what you've explored through your books. Well, I think you did a pretty good job of uh, giving a little summary as I think about it. Now, one of the, I think my main work is just exploring this mystery of, of being alive within this amazing world. And when I think about that, you know, one of the things that fascinate me is as a real little kid, I was always drawn to flowing water, and I, I, I played in streams um, from age four on, and it was just always this thing I was drawn to, but I never thought that 
you know, it'd be what I, you know, when grownups ask, what are you going to do with your, what are you going to be when you grow up? I never thought of playing with water as a legitimate answer to that. And yet I have found now, you know, as an old man, that that is indeed what I've spent a lot of my life doing mm-hmm. is it, because it's just water is, um, you know, kind of like a Taoist thing. It's, there's so mm-hmm. much to be learned from it. And that, um, that playing in water is one of my best educations, one of my best learning experiences. And the whole world's like that too. And just to live life, like life is like this flowing water and just learning from it is, I think, sort of my work. And it's led to you know, what I do when I'm a grown-up, which was a national park ranger for a while and then um, and then a teacher and then my wife and I helping co-found Chrysalis Charter School and uh, writing these books and going out on rain walks and it's very open-ended. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what I, what I really appreciated about your more recent book, Roaming, is that it was very autobiographical. You kind of took us through your whole story of your relationship with nature and, and your whole life. And so maybe I, I would be curious, like, um, you know, y- you have become, in my mind, somebody who is expert at watching the natural world and sort of um, extracting or, or seeing analogies with other parts of the world or kind of like uh, capturing really beautiful principles and understandings that translate into various domains of life. How did that, how did you be, how did you learn to do that? Because often when I look at the natural world, it just seems like this thing outside of me that has its own logic that's kind of impenetrable. Like what was the process by which you became so uh, acutely aware of those patterns? That's an interesting question. I'm going to have to take a little time to think about that one. Just a second. There's just one thing, and, and when you describe roaming upward as autobiographical, I think of it as the autobiography of these ideas that I've pursued, mm. not so much my autobiography, but a, a focus is on the ideas. There's a lot of my life that I've left out just because I'm not sharing my life. I'm sharing about the ideas. Um, so that's one thing. But in terms of how you come to that, um, the, way the one answer I could give will not sound right. It will sound too pretentious. <laughs> but uh, in, in the book I describe in the first chapter when I'm just searching kind of totally clueless after college, I was hiking all night and I sat down because I got sleepy in the middle of the night propped my pack up against the side of the road and fell asleep. And I woke up from a dream I was having where I was presented with the golden book of life. And it was just this book with this aura about it of truth and everything important in the world is in this book. And when I opened the book, there it all was, but I couldn't read it. Mm. Um, and, And the impression from that dream was not frustration, but just, there it is. It does exist. It's just, I, I can't read it. And then over the next few months, I started getting these, as I was spending time in parks and hiking through nature, I was starting to get 
catch little snippets and kind of go, oh, that's like a sentence out of that book. Mm-hmm. And so I think maybe that's the origin of it. But, but I really, I don't want to pin too much on that dream, but it's just, um, you, you know, it's you start down a certain path and the world walks with you and kind of helps you along the way. Mm-hmm. And I just have found, you know, there's a thing I call the fit where two pieces of the world come together mm-hmm. and um, it's like a, a cross, you know, like a jigsaw puzzle. When you put two pieces together, those two pieces, there's more information in those pieces together than there is in the two pieces separate. Mm-hmm. And, and as you fit more of these pieces together, you start seeing this bigger picture and that and that's kind of the draw that draws you along. So I think that's my answer. Mm. Yeah. And, and I guess for me in listening to that and, and in reading your books, I was constantly drawing symmetries to my own experience with meditation, you know, in, in Tibetan, the translation of the word for meditation is, something like familiarity where you spend mm. time with your experience. And, and as you do that in an open way, all of a sudden something just kind of clicks. And it, as you say, it, it, yeah. it fits uh-huh. and there's an right. aha and you're like, Oh, it could, it could never have not been this way, but now I, now I can see it. And my impression from your work is that you have spent a tremendous amount of time. Uh, maybe you wouldn't call it meditating, but, sort of just sitting and observing and paying a particular kind of attention to the natural world um, that over time has kind of given you all of these understandings of patterns. Is that an, a fair way of kind of describing what has occurred for you? Absolutely. Yes. Um, and you know, I, I've just been blessed working with the national parks that I was able to be sitting out in really, really powerful places and, um, and and being able to go back week after week to certain spots and and to just really get to know a place to teach about it, then go out and walk in it and come back. And, mm. and that feedback spiral between my experience and my teaching and just trying to understand, you know, these fits at a deeper and deeper level is... Uh, has been a blessing in my life. Yeah, and I remember there was a particular description in, in Roaming Upwards that struck me where, where I, I don't remember which park you were at, but um, you were talking about how you would, like you're reading and then you'd go out and walk and then you come back and read and you go out and walk and each of those movements would inform the other in a, in a, in a way. And there was right. a kind of like feedback, reinforcing feedback loop. Uh, just within those two pieces, and I, I guess I'm, I'm, which, which again is is very similar to meditation. You know, you sit on your butt and you look at your experience, and then you come back and you're like, "Oh, interesting!" Like, what, <laughs> you know, read read a little yeah. bit about that, and, and then you go back, and there's this kind of mutual reinforcement. And, and, but I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm curious because there there is, I think, I see in your writing a kind of particular. F- way that you bring attention or that you observe the natural world. And, I, and I'd be really curious to hear you just sort of unpack, like, how is it that you walk and observe the natural world that does tend to lend itself to discovering these fits and these patterns? Um, I think at the deepest level is just this 
absolute assumption that everything is flowing. Um, mm. And I mean that most uh, logically at the chemistry level, the level of molecules, that what we see out there, none of what we see out there now existed at the beginning of time. And it's all flowed into its current shape. And, um, you know, continents are flowing and trees are growing upwards and weather is passing over and our bodies develop and age and die and pass on and, and food flows through us. Everything is flowing. And that assumption, I think, is taking it at a, a deeply literal um, uh, way of looking at the world. It, it leads immediately to everything being connected and, and not being connected in sort of some frou-frou kind of, okay, we'll say it, but not necessarily believe it way, but just in a real gut-level way. Um, everything is flowing and we are part of this interconnected flows and we have the power to change them and doesn't make a difference if we change them and and in my last 20 or 30 years that i've mostly focused on in roaming upward is the idea of life actively changes the flows um you know, started with my reading of the Gaia Hypothesis by Lovelock and Margulis, and, and then with my Rainwalk work. Um, that um, right, let me just jump into it. I think one of the the biggest things for me was when um, I I looked at the water cycle, which we all learn about in fourth grade. It's a cycle going around, but when I looked at higher level books, looking for what the actual numbers are that are involved, what I learned was that the two main things are 90% of all the water that evaporates off the ocean falls back into the ocean and never makes it to land. So it's real hard to move that water onto land. Mm. And the water that falls from the ocean onto the land is barely enough to sustain desert grasslands. And yet we have almost three times that amount of water falling on the land. And that water is coming from mostly the plants transpiring the little water that does fall on them back into the sky to fall again and again. There's almost this triple recycling of the rain that comes from the ocean so that now we have forest. And that is what life does, that mm -hmm. life takes this limited precious gift of fresh water it uses that water partly to fuel photosynthesis which then leads to surface areas of more leaves which can um, photosynthesize even more transpire more of the water back up and also bring more of the solar energy into the whole biosphere and so the food web builds up the amount of rain builds up that there's this active work by life to increase the conditions for more life. Mm. And that has been sort of the frame with which I see what's happening in the world a lot. And of course, that leads into concerns both you and I and many have that currently our human occupation is not doing that. that we are uh, you know, we're consuming without doing this job of, of 
creating possibilities for the entire life. Mm. So I think I have rambled and roamed a bit away from your question. So I'll stop now and, and let you respond. No, I, 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 um, I, I, and I love this metaphor in the, in the book, you, you call it, uh, upward spirals, which I, I guess isn't even really a metaphor. It's actually like what happens that, and, and, and I guess I'll check my understanding. My sense is that the first law of, or the, the laws of thermodynamics, which you describe in the book would seem to indicate that we're kind of on a inevitable trajectory towards the end of life. And yet these upward spirals seem to create the circumstances by which life can flourish in spite of the law of entropy and, and the kind of natural tendency for energy to sort of dissolve into the world. Is that, an, is that accurate? Am I understanding that right? You're right on. Okay, great. And so, um, so, so maybe we can differentiate between what you call upward spirals, which you described in, in terms of the water cycle just now, and downward spirals. Like what are, what are downward spirals and where do you see them acting in the world right now? Well, here's one example of a downward spiral. When the mountain men went beaver trapping into north, of, into Western North America in the early 1800s, they pretty much trapped out the beaver. And the beaver is a keystone species that was having all these dams um, across all the streams coming out of the Rockies. Mm. And those dams catch the spring runoff and slow it down. And so instead of Flash, flashy floods of water coming down on hot days, you have this buffer so that the water is spread out over a longer period of time, flowing slower. Mm. And what happened is that allows deposition, allows these beaver ponds to fill up, become meadows, and then they relocate their dams. And that the hydrology through that area was very different than what it is now. Mm. And the tragedy of it is is that the when you get into the Oregon Trail and those pioneers they were seeing the world 20 years after this species has been wiped out and so um, that we have grown up in a world that has lost many things and we think that world is the mm. normal world but when you go out into nature and see what it is capable of you realize that um, that there is a lot that can be changed and that's where you start getting into flows and how can you change the flows to to create these possibilities mm -hmm. look at what beaver do and you kind of go okay can i do a little bit of that too uh, and, and i think bringing myself back more to your question i think one of the biggest downward spirals is assumptions that the world is doomed to run down assumptions that um you know, the, that the purpose of life is to acquire more possessions than other people. There's assumptions within our culture that, um, you know, I mean, one assumption that I saw change in my lifetime, my parents are depression, you know, from the depression, and you don't borrow. You only borrow when you have to. And I can remember as a kid seeing the emergence of credit cards and, and have it now. And that has 
and we're now living in a culture that is pretty much full of debt slaves mm. who have lost the freedom to live a life autonomously and have to make their monthly payments. And, and that, for me, is a downward spiral. Mm. Yeah, and the, and, the, and the kind of sense that I get is that there has been, through all of biological evolution as well as in in some cases, I think in in human social cultural evolution, the the building of these upward spirals that sort of resist entropy and create the conditions by which life can flourish, and it's like we're almost just rampaging through those elegant systems and dynamics, and just like extracting what we want now at the cost of destroying often the uh you know the the, the very mm, uh, appropriate fit between the different elements of the natural and even cultural world um without really knowing what we're doing we're just kind of like <laughs> you know like you said we want it now and so we're willing to destroy that which could provide for us later yeah, I, I agree. And it's like, like one image I have is uh, as a kid, you build a snowman and you're out there for several hours building your snowman and you build a snowman that's four or five feet tall. And then at some point in time, some other kid comes by and it's kind of neat to knock a snowman down. Mm -hmm. And um, especially at first, you get this big boom and then boom, and then there's a pile of snow, and then you jump on the snow and you smack it down, and um, you get diminishing returns, and after a point, the pile, the, the pile of snow is so low that it's really no longer worth the effort to knock it any lower, and, and so then you leave, and that's the fate of your snowman, and that it, it's kind of like uh, water, you know, if you can get this grip, a change in water elevation, you can get energy out of it. And so anything that life has built up, you can get some energy out of extracting, you know, taking that thing and knocking it down to a lower level. And that, that the focus is so much on extracting things for your personal value and that what we've not, um, experience for most of us is the absolute satisfaction and enoughness mm. of doing the work of building it up. Mm. I mean, to, I haven't talked about it much, but I go out in the rain and I change the way water flows to spread it out and help more soak in. And it is just this great blessing to go walking in the springtime and watching these plants emerging where plants did used to not emerge and just you know hearing the birds singing and realizing they might be eating insects mm. that were growing on plants that wouldn't be there without it and just feeling yourself a part of, of this world in a in a way that satisfies more than any possession can satisfy yeah and the and the as you were talking about the this boy coming along and you know, destroying the snowman. The, what what is striking to me is is just how much easier it is to destroy than it is to build. And I right. guess there's a part of me in hearing what you're saying that feels like the skill of 
nourishing upward spirals is such a rarefied way of relating to the world. Whereas destroying things and breaking these patterns that have taken thousands or millions of years to come into being is very simple, very easy, very available, very like uh, even celebrated, you know, disruption is celebrated. All these things are celebrated. And it's like, um, what, what, how, how do we, and that feels a little hopeless to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think uh, one thing I think we have to watch out a little bit, like when I'm talking about kids destroying the snowman, I've probably done it myself. And that also um, you you look at like, say the, um, the, the, the extraction of oil for gasoline. That is a really powerful work. I think the people who did it would be offended if we called it destroying the world. Um, for them, I think they see it as a, a massive mm. engineering challenge, a technological marvel, and that it has allowed humanity to achieve a level of, of control and, and opportunity that would not be there mm. without their work. And I think it's important to be able to acknowledge that. And then, um, and, and then there's a thing I call uh, 3D experiences where you're trying to look at two perspectives simultaneously, hold them in your mind. Like, you know, we get depth perception from right eye, left eye. You hold that in mind, then you also hold in mind uh, climate mm. change. And you go, okay, these are two mm. different perspectives on the same thing. And if you hold them simultaneously, you'll have a perception of the depth of our situation more than if you just look at it through one eye or the other. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the biggest ideas that I'm grappling with throughout my life is how do you live in a universe that's shaped by the second law of thermodynamics and that it's this relentless flow downwards, but that flow gives you the direction for what you want to do with your life. You want to help move things mm. upstream. And so you don't go with the flow, that old hippie expression, go with the flow, but you, um, but you um, invite the flow into your life as, as a direction, and then you orient mm. by that. Knowing, knowing that, in order to do that work, you're going to need to eat. You're going to have to, other living things are going to die so that you can live, that you are part of that flow downward, but you are helping things. I don't call it moving up. What they do is they're, mm. they're backing up. The second law doesn't allow things to flow up, but it does allow things to back up. And if you slow flows down, they back up. And that's, you know, if you look at, when I talk, when we're talking about how everything is flowing, you look at soil and that is, that is the flow of uh, eroded bedrock slowly moving to the sea. But if it's getting formed faster than it's flowing away, it's going to build up, mm. it's going to back up and plant root, plant roots help hold it together more and, and help it absorb more rain so more plants can grow in the soil can then start to, you know, as the plants pull in carbon dioxide and creating surface areas, the leaves fall on top of the ground and, and then starting to build up too. So 
wonderful things can happen when we start with working with the world as flows. Yeah, and and so we're we can become aware of these downward spirals or downward flows, and we can acknowledge that there's no way to sort of just reverse that flow and make it upward. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and so instead the invitation or the, 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 the kind of way of relating to this reality that you've discovered has to do with, um, well, I, well, I, I've heard you frame it as making plays. Um, but can you describe a little bit about like what, what it, what it's like for you to go out into the world and kind of just see this and then be like, Oh, I can, you know, I can work a little magic here and then not, uh, reverse entropy but like give it a little bit of a, a a a space in which it can recirculate or however you would describe it spread, yeah. uh, spread the flows out increase mm. surface area and spread the flows out so that the that certain flows are slowed down certain flows are sped up kind of depending on what you what you think uh, wants to grow there you just like in permaculture they say everything gardens and mm. so to, to look at your life as a garden to look at everything around you as a garden and kind of try to develop the maturity and wisdom to go what does this thing want to be rather than what do i think it wants to be but to just mm. um to, you know like there's this the yeah i'll tell you the story it's in roaming upward it's near the end it's and, and we're because part of it is also, um, you know, we started Chrysalis in the same way. It's a play that we, we thought um, that education uh, teachers need to be free to be able to actually respond to what's happening with the students in that moment and not be dictated from higher up chain of commands as to what they're supposed to be doing at all time in the classroom. And so we set up Chrysalis to be to give teachers that responsiveness. And one of the loveliest examples of that I've ever had um, was I was working with this eighth grade girl who had transferred into Chrysalis from another school where she was being bullied and teased because she wasn't mm. very good at math. Mm. And, um, and so I was working with her one-on-one -on, -one on a math problem kind of doing Socratic teaching, trying to get her to do the, the thinking so she could reach understanding. And at a certain point in it, I realized that when I was asking questions, none of her thinking was going to answer the question. All of her thinking was going to, what can I say so that my answer, because I don't have the slightest idea of what the answer is, so that my answer won't look stupid. Mm. And... And, and so she would say something, but it had nothing to do with math. It was just trying to respond to my question, to deflect the question. And I was always asking more questions, which is probably why I saw the pattern. And I looked at her and I said, math has been really hard for you, hasn't mm -hmm. it? And she looked, we looked in each other's eyes and her eyes were just brimming with tears and she was about to cry. And mm. then just before the tears were welling up enough to start flowing out of her eyes, I could see her tear duct muscles just contract 
and mm. not let any more tears into her eyes. And um, and I understood that was how she had been conditioned to handle the bullying and teasing. She couldn't cry, mm. and so she'd have to choke that back. And I was looking in her eyes, and I was kind of going, it's all right. And when the tears would subside, I would kind of say, it's all right to to feel that sadness. And then the, the tears would come up again, and just about when they're about to overwhelm her eyes again, she'd clench and shut it down, and I'd kind of go, that's all right, I understand. You had to do that in order to avoid the bullying. And there was this oscillation back and forth that gradually quieted down to a point where she could just look at me with her eyes full of tears, but not overflowing, mm. just kind of shining with this acknowledgement. And what was so beautiful about that was we, we reached a new point in our relationship where she realized it was okay to say, I don't know, I don't have the slightest idea of what's going on here, whatever. And she could start focusing on the math. And over the next few months, she started becoming a competent math student because mm. she would focus on the math instead of the fear of being bullied. Um, I can't even remember what your question was that led me on to that. But I think somehow that story is an example of whatever your question was about. Well, yeah, it was it was it was to give examples of these kind of plays. And I know that mostly you describe them in in the context of the natural world or or nature, so to speak. Uh, not that I want to draw a firm distinction between nature and humans, but it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating and and for me at least very relatable to hear that story. I mean, and and you know. One part of me is also like, boy, I sure wish I had that kind of teacher when I was struggling with math, you know, um, uh, how much of my own struggles with that subject uh, were emotionally, uh, were, were because of emotional uh, blockages and, and, and things like that. And, and so it, it, when you're in that situation, when you were in that situation, how were you seeing it similarly to the way that you would see a play in nature, like uh, adjusting? Yeah. Looking, looking back on it, I can see that. Um, at the moment, I was just kind of caught up by this, by the direct window her eyes gave me to her spirit and, and just, to it, it, it became, you know, it wasn't metaphorical or anything like that. It was just, here's these, and boy, I asked that question and here come these tears. And, and mm. it's just like they had been, they'd been held back. And then just as they're about to flow over, oh, I could see the clenching in the eye. So I, I think there might be a, a um, you know, if I was to honor myself, I, there there would be a sensitivity in. I mean, one of the things that I've getting way back to one an earlier question. One of the things that I've always had in my life is I love to watch slow changes. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. and, you know, if there's a, a change that's happening that's going to take twenty minutes, I'd love to watch. <laughs> Um, 
and, and I can remember, I think it was back in my childhood, we had the stream that ran through the our yard and there was a little pond that you could put a little dam in. And it was so cool to get dad to put the dam in and then just sit, it's gonna take a couple of hours for the, the stream to back up to the pool and just to watch the water rising and to walk around the stream at different places and yep, here the water's coming up here too and just um, that all these little details of change are just absolutely fascinating to me. So mm. that might be one thing I bring from my childhood, but just, you know, her her eyes were just revealing information. It's, I mean, the, the world is just full of information and we need to be receptive to it. But again, I think it's another, that's a, that story is another example of what I talked about with 3D um, seeing you, you take the, you, you take playing with the rain, um, you know, out in the fields and that's one eye and the other eye is watching this girl's spirit you know, with math, and they are two, they are two perspectives on the same thing, which mm. is we're switching a downward spiral to an upward spiral. And the fact that they're in two totally different contexts gives it a lot more depth. Mm. Yeah. And, and I mean, what, what's coming up for me is that it, it, in the way that you describe it, both in the plays that you make as you, walk in in nature and in this kind of story or more broadly with like chrysalis charter school like that these are the kinds of behaviors that i think or i imagine that if human beings generally speaking got really good at you know as 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 a population that that would quickly change the course of humanity right like that's what we kind of need to do and and it I wonder, you know, you talked about this 3D seeing, but what other, or are there other sort of uh, essential skills or ways of relating that in your world are, are, are part of how you see plays that need to be taken and then like take advantage of them? Or how do, or I don't know if, if that makes sense as a question for you. It makes sense as a question. I don't know if I have an answer to it. Um I mean, the the first part you were talking about, I go, yes, exactly. That is, um, you know, it'd be lovely to, uh, as a as a culture, to practice, uh, you know, to develop this understanding and and to have, um, you know, for us all to be helping one another nourish in our own ways. You know, it's it's not like. Everybody has to go out and do the same thing, though the work is infinite and there's each of us is in our own unique place. And just like I want to empower teachers to be able to be responsive to what's happening in the classroom rather than dictating to all teachers right. what they shall be doing. Right. It, it's the you know, I, I, I would not want to send everybody out in trials and, and doing my, <laughs> my work. I'm, I'm sure there's some people who would love it. And, the, and, and I would love, you know, I was... I remember this one experience where I was working. I've been just starting in a new area, and I came up to this new drainage, and there was a play exactly where I would have put a play. And I go, I got, I'm not alone. I'm like Robinson Crusoe, you know, here discovering human footprints in the sand that there's somebody else doing it. 
Uh, and it was such a totally cool feeling. Mm. And, and then I realized, oh, that was actually my play, and I'd come from a different direction. I didn't realize where I was in this new area. It's just me again. <laughs> mm. But anyway, it's. Uh, uh, but yeah, so I'd love for other people to be doing that work. Um, but it's not the only work, and it's. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, you know, I when I'm standing in a grocery line, I'm kind of going, okay, what can I do here to lift the spirits of everybody who's around me? What, how can I interact with the, the, the person at the, the checkout line to lift their spirit? How, how can we just, you know, be a member of this little community that we're in at this moment to, 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 to create upward spirals within each other? Mm. So it's all a game. I mean, you just kind of if you look at it all as a game, it's, it's lovely fun. Yeah. And so I, I'm in my, in my geek mind, I'm going to like reverse engineer what you're saying and say like, okay, so one, one way that we can sort of, you know, uh, explore what you've been exploring in whatever context we find ourselves in, because I think, as you say, um, this, this kind of, uh, uh, vision of how we make change is extremely, context dependence, like particular to our lives and to our direct experience, which um, obviously right, is very right. different than like some kind of singular vision of like what we all need to do in order to create a better world. And which is, which is, yeah, we don't need to belabor that. But you now if we find ourselves as the locus of change in our own lives, in our own context, in our own communities, that one way we can start to engender this kind of relationship is by seeing it as a game. And the game is to yeah. create upward spirals. And you can, uh, what I hear you saying is that even just asking the question kind of turns your mind to look for opportunities that you may otherwise not have seen. And, and let, let me add another little part of my conceptual framework here to, to take that further. Another idea that's important to me is, uh, and that, uh, shapes my perception of the world is uh, you know it's once you're at everything is flowing then there's something I call the relative balance in the two levels and if everything's flowing then if you look at something there's things flowing into it and things flowing out of it like if I look at the tree out this window here you know the roots are there's things flowing up through those roots into the tree and the tree, there's leaves dropping off the, the, the leaves dropping off the tree, and, and there's this flow through the tree, and there's birds coming in, and there's a whole lot of flows, acorns dropping, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and if you start seeing the world as flows, then, um, and, and I was talking about getting things to back up, there's something I call the uh, upper level of flow, which is, there's the stuff that's actually flowing. And my best, the most familiar example is uh, traffic. The, when traffic backs up, the cars are not backing up. The mm. traffic is an upper level expression of this lower level of the cars. Mm. And the cars are all flowing forward. But if they flow forward slower than they're coming in, they back up. And so that if, if and my little rules of flow are if inflow is greater than outflow, the upper level accumulates. And you can think mm. of like money. If you, if you have more money coming in than you spend, your amount of money there, your amount of wealth increases. And if 
if you have less money coming in than you're spending, your amount of wealth decreases. Your wealth is the upper level expression of this flow of money. And um, so if, if more is coming in than going out, the upper level accumulates, it rises. If less coming in than going out, it drops. And so, and, and it all depends on the relative balance. You know, if you spend, if you have an income of a million dollars a day, but you spend a million and one dollars a day, you're actually going to go broke. Um, it doesn't matter how much each other is, it's the relative balance. So you're always looking at shifting the relative balance. Hmm. And, um, and so that's sort of, that helps you also focus on where the possible play is. Kind of that you don't need to mm. create an upward spiral. You just need to shift the relative balance. You just okay. This, you know, this. I don't like this. I think this outflow is draining possibilities. So I'm going to slow that outflow down. Or, oh, this inflow. If it could build up more, it could create something. I'm going to enhance this inflow. Mm. That. You know, sometimes you're increasing an inflow or you're increasing an outflow or sometimes you're decreasing an inflow or decreasing an outflow. You're just playing with this relative balance and you you experiment and play because you're not God. And there's been, some th- <laughs> there's been some things I've done that have been wrong. I mean, oops, yeah. that was a mistake. Uh, and I can't change it, but I can learn from it. Mm. Yeah, and... I can imagine like one of the contexts that I am in that I I, I can see myself using this way of relating is in the context of a community, right? And so you can observe, or I'm, I'm imagining one could observe the flow of respect or love or, um, patience even, Uh and, and sort of see like, Oh, interesting. Like what would somebody here, you know, this person over here isn't really getting the flow of love that they need in order for love to flow through the system as a whole and kind of be spread and create that upward spiral, or at least, you know, uh, create a healthier system. And so uh, would that be a a kind of way of seeing that uh, it's kind of aligned with what you're saying? Try it out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you, you kind of got to watch out. Like that, that story of the, 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 the math girl and her tears, mm. that to my mind is a very exquisite story, a very special story. Yeah. Um, part of the reason it's special is it doesn't happen that often, and I cannot tell you 10 million stories that are on that level. You know, most mm. of the time it's, it's lower than that, um, and every now and then it rises to a symphony like that. But it's... It's always this little game, and it's always uh, you know learning and just you know, dancing through the middle of life. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, and I mean the the sense that I get from both of your books is that we, through spending time within a particular domain, be, become or or develop the level of sensitivity to make plays that would seem absurdly masterful to somebody who hasn't spent, you know, like what even I, I imagine that your like least sophisticated play of redistributing water in an ecosystem is something that would just boggle my mind. Right. Like I, I just don't even have the capacity to really understand yet how it is that you're seeing what needs to be done, how it is that you understand then therefore like how to uh, kind of design your play. And, and, and just so I, I imagine that 
you could develop that level of sophistication with uh, human relationships such that you could make what seem like incredibly masterful plays that are gobsmacking, but just because you've paid so close attention to that, that sort of system, subsystems. You're absolutely right, because I am aware when I'm out in the rain that some of my plays are just exquisite, and, and to me, they're exquisite. And to somebody else, they would see me taking a, maybe a rock that's one inch across and trying to put it seven or eight different orientations until I come upon a way of fitting it into some place. And it's, and it's, it's totally unnecessary in the sense of the difference between those, those different orientations are probably a millimeter per century of change or something, but it's just fun. Mm. And, and just to try to fit that rock within the flow of water in such a way that it just spreads the water out in the coolest way is is fun. And, and it reminds me of this one story. I, I did occasionally, I have the opportunity to have somebody who's read my book want to come out with me on, on, on rain walks and all. And um, I had this one guy and he, he was and, and what you said, just a perfect setup for it. He, he kind of thought I, he thought he had it and he said, okay, here, let me, let me do it. And he picks up this big rock, just a like, you know, probably a 50 pound rock and he carries it like 20 yards and places it down. And he goes, how is that as a play? <laughs> and I said, well, you, you put it on an animal trail. Um, there's no water coming here. <laughs> you, oh, <laughs> And so, so yeah, I, I guess uh, the, I, I, I would classify myself as a true world master of putting little rocks down in water. <laughs> um, and so it is a very, it's an art form that I am probably very sophisticated at that a person who's never done it would be gobsmacked. Um, but it's play. <laughs> right, but, but I, I guess, you know, my mind is wanting to take what you've discovered in your life and your the domains that you've explored with most intensity and time and sort of generalize them so that we can apply them into other domains. And what I'm hearing is essentially like uh, the, the, the sort of vision is to become somebody capable of making these sorts of plays, which um, either add more inflow of positive uh, material into the system or create an upward spiral. And really the domain could, it, it, it's kind of, whatever domain you find yourself in and and perhaps if you're attracted to this way of being in the world like consider like what domains are you resonating with that you would spend time becoming extremely sensitive to and be developing the kind of artful gaze that and and sensitivity that would allow you to discern what plays are available and open up that whole landscape of possibility um, so that you can interfere wisely and not problematically. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the uh, when you're saying that earlier on, I, I when you asked about downward spirals, I said one, one of the downward spirals is these cultural assumptions of mm. that the world's doomed to run down and get it while you can, and, and whoever has the most, you know, try to get more possessions than other people. And I said those assumptions are 
create downward spirals. What you just said is absolutely perfect. It's those are the assumption you were saying about how one's life could be this opportunity to to have this relation. That that is an upward spiral assumption. And the second thing I would say to that is the mystery of it all is a really profound mystery is that when you, and this is where, um, this is something that I kind of wrestled with in writing Roaming Upward about ego and, and what's your relationship with ego. But one of the profound mysteries um, trying to not have my ego in the way at all, is that when you do this work, it changes the world that leads you to a different place, which Mm. changes the world, and that um, your life fits into, becomes part of an upward spiral. It's not you creating upward spirals, it's now you within an upward spiral that has the power to change the world. Um, mm. Like creating chrysalis. You know, there's been hundreds of kids and families who've, who I think would say their lives have been truly blessed because of chrysalis. And the way that that came to be, I could never have done that. Um, mm. back in my national park days and that I attribute a lot of of the reality of chrysalis to playing out in the fields with water um, mm. and that work you know, it, it, it changed me in ways that then go back into the world and as we're, we're all in this spiral that eventually came to a point where we were able to create chrysalis. And then eight or nine years into that, we came to a point where chrysalis had a firmer, uh, clearer idea of what our vision is, which is to encourage the light within each student to shine brighter. And that just led us Mm. to a higher level um, in the school. And so sometimes I call my eighth grade history class the what is possible class that when I'm truly centered, I really do not know what is possible. I mean, I am within this amazing universe, and I have absolutely no idea what is possible based on my experience I've had so far with the world that we can't limit our imaginations to what we think is possible. There's just, the world's very mysterious to me. Yeah, and so uh, that perception of the world paul i imagine is to some degree the 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 product of a life lived in alignment with some of these principles um and ways of seeing and so you know as we come towards the the final part of this conversation i guess one thing i'm curious about is you've mentioned these cultural assumptions and my sense is from what you said that certain cultural assumptions either keep us locked in a downward spiral or perhaps like occlude our vision from seeing the possibility of participating in upward spirals. And this one that you mentioned around um, kind of getting mine, like taking care of my own security and just like 
extracting myself from being having to be embedded in the world, sort of like uh, isolating myself, getting my security at, at perhaps at the expense of others, but more I'm just concerned about me and maybe my loved ones. Um, there's and, and you also mentioned that there's a way in which you do have to kind of tend to that, like you have to feed yourself, you have to take care of yourself, and so on. But how how do you um how 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 would you invite somebody to kind of look at that assumption such that they might be able to escape it? Um, there's something that uh, in roaming upward I call the gradient of wealth, and when when you look historically at European American culture, um, you know in the 1500s you. Before the 1500s, you had this sort of unified Catholic church orientation toward life is, is about salvation, eternal salvation. And, and this world is sort of a short trial to your eternal fate. Um, and it kind of kept everybody on that same page. And then you had the, the Protestant Reformation. You had the scientific revolution. And that for most of the world, that older view has been uh, really lost its the power and then the authority that it had. And especially with the scientific revolution, um, we've learned that you know, we're not the center of the universe, we're, that the universe is not a few thousand years old and all about us. And that I think we lost our mooring and then you also had the Industrial Revolution and then everybody being able to access a whole lot more industrial products than people ever could back in the days when they made clay pots. And um, there's, uh, but I think we lost the, the spiritual connection to the universe. The universe became more of a mechanical universe that mm-hmm. followed these uh, impersonal laws. And and so that for a lot of us, the, the, the direction that our culture teaches us to live your life is what I call the gradient of wealth, is to try to have more wealth than others. Um, that wealth, that with wealth, you can buy things that give you more possibilities. You know, you can buy more food, you can buy warmer clothes, nicer clothes, and so you live your life in such a way that you can um, have more wealth than others. And that I think is when a whole culture tries to navigate that way, you get into real trouble, Mm. which is why I think it's one of the things that underlies currently what we're dealing with is, and that um, what I'm exploring with my book is trying to open the idea to, no, we need to detach from that gradient. We need to take our direction from the second law. Like I've been saying that we're in this flow that's flowing downward and our job is to to embrace that flow and to help things back up. And you take that as the direction for your life and it leads to a very, very different direction than trying to get more than others. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And so that that sounds... Good. Like, and I'm, I'm kind of going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. Um, like that's, that sounds good to me. And yet, like, I know money can buy me things. 
and I need to secure myself. But the idea of sort of just trusting upward flows, like that doesn't feel real to me in a way. That doesn't feel trustworthy in the way that like money feels trustworthy. How do how would how do I, you know, um, what do you what do you, what would you say to that kind of perspective? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of our challenges, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, to live in the world but not be part of it. Um, yeah, so avoid debt <laughs> and uh, um, minimize spending. And one of the things I say in Roaming Upward, too, is one of the most important things is to de- disconnect any sense of the worth of a person that 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 there is no connection between how much wealth a person has and their moral value one way or another rich people aren't bad poor people aren't bad rich people aren't good poor people aren't good there's people some have more money some have less uh, having money makes gives a different kind of power to some people. Being able to look in a girl's eyes and see her tear ducts is another kind of power. I mean, there's Mm. so many different kinds of power. We're all unique. We're all in this world. And to, um, but not to get caught up at all in thinking that if you acquire more wealth that you become a better person than other people. Um, But, uh, but, yeah, what you're saying is absolutely true. And I, as an older man, kind of look at my daughters growing up and it's a world out there where there's a lot of student debt. And I mm. I think that this culture is really, the, the ground is eroding fast and we have mm. a lot of work to do. And that, um, and, and that the fact that our youngest, younger generations are having to struggle with how do I, how can I maintain my integrity and my vision of what I want to become in this world that's just throwing, uh, you know, just taking everything away? It's it's hard. It's uh, you know, to to be playful in such a world is a mm-hmm. challenge. Um, so I have no easy answer for that. That's the work that's before us. That's part mm-hmm. of the reason I I. I mean, and to go back to the very beginning, that's that's the reason that I wrote Roaming Upward and just putting it online for free. I basically have given a gift of three years of my life to trying to put these ideas into a form where others can read them. And I'm not trying to get anything out of it except trying to help the world move upward. Mm. Um, and then so we, we give our gifts when we can and do the work we need to. And I, yeah, I think that's an honest answer. So I appreciate that. Um, and it is hard. Like speaking as a young person, it's really, really hard um, yeah. right now. Um, and I think it's probably harder for even younger people. Um, I'm 32 or 30, 31. Uh, and I guess part of what your answer brought up in me is also that my sense from reading roaming upwards is that so so you can present on the one hand we have the story of like you know get financial security and that's the the primary motive 
of your life. And in our culture, I think that that you're right. Like that's the kind of primary story that we see circulating in the world. No, 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 not not financial security. More than. Uh-huh. The, uh-huh. The, somehow you become the, the higher up on the gradient wealth you are, the better person you are. I see. Okay, sure. So okay. So that that's the the story that to whatever to to, to a large degree we're kind of encultured into. You know, our advertising, our yes. the media system, all of it is actually like instructing us that this is how we ought to look at our life and how we ought to measure the success of our life. Uh, yeah, and and one thing that's really changed over the last 30 or 40 years, the, the mass media almost always now calls us the American consumer. Mm. And, um, and, and I keep going, no, I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen of this world. I'm not a consumer. I mean, I, yeah, it's like a mom makes me have to consume, but that's not what I am. I'm a creator. Yeah. And so you know, that's just, that's just one of those little assumptions we change. Now back to you well, again. Yeah, yeah, and so and so um, w- when I see that kind of system, it's almost like there's a way in which we've been practicing a certain way of seeing ourselves and the purpose of our life that's just sort of like implied in the whole landscape of media and our culture and our economy. And what you're inviting yes. is this other way of seeing, which from the perspective of um, the the American consumer, is pretty like pretty sketchy it's like i don't know that i can trust you know <laughs> these upward spirals i you know what what is that what is that really we're on the uh, but but you yourself i think um these are not merely concepts they're they're things that you have observed by spending copious amounts of time in the natural world like looking at them and like saying and being surprised by them and seeing that they were in fact trustworthy and so there is a way in which you practiced over time a different way of seeing that then allowed you or empowered you to take risks that it sounds, I mean, to a large degree, it sounds like they've, they've been very worthwhile. Like now, you know, seeing what you've created with Chrysalis, um, for instance, I'm sure there are many other examples, but, uh, I, I, the, the other piece of your writing that speaks to me is that it's an invitation to practice seeing the world differently such that you can actually live according to a different kind of game. Right. Like when I was saying that, you know, the bigger mystery is how the world changes as you do this and you move into a different world where something different is possible that, that like you're saying, it's, it's, you know, to trust that you, about this money thing, you know, it's kind of a big jump. Well, you know, you don't make it a big jump. You just, one or two plays isn't going to free you from money enculturation, but it's just this gradual backing up of possibilities. It's just, you know, I mean, me with money, it was probably a 10 or 20 year change um, Mm. over time. And, and, and I, I am, Definitely not a wealthy person. We have a very simple life, um, but we have a huge satisfaction um, knowing that we've made a difference in a lot of kids' lives. And uh, so just kind of putting your value someplace differently. Mm. And and so, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, this show, I think, I created out of my own inquiry into like, how do I live my life at 
this moment in time that seems so confusing in so many different ways? Um, and how do I, you know, be of benefit to the world in a real way instead of uh, just not, I guess. And uh, I, 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 and so I often ask this question. I'm curious to hear your perspective as an educator, and, and given your, you know, your life's work, what would you say to a young-ish person listening who's looking out on the world and and is feeling this desire to be of service and to live a life that's meaningful and and makes a difference, um, but doesn't really know how to to orient given that desire and the kind of complexity of the world. <laughs> Read Roman upward. Again, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Roman upward starts with me out of college, and I did not have the slightest idea of what I wanted to do. And, um, and, and the, the story really starts with me going, what is it I really want to do? And I was appalled that there was nothing that came to mind, hmm. except for one silly, trivial little thing, which was not on the scale that I was asking the question. And finally, I did that one silly, trivial little thing, and it changed my life. So um, I, I think the probably the best advice I could give is don't give up your desire to be a person that makes this world a better place. Mm. Don't give up. Mm. Hold on to that. Thank you, Paul. I'm curious as we bring this conversation to a close, if there's anything uh, on your mind or in your heart that you'd like to share with those who are listening before we end this conversation. There's thousands of things. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this. And I, and, and I really, really, really appreciate the fact that you have been doing this work of creating this podcast. And, um, and, and I know you're, starting off on a, a, another spiral within your life. Mm. And I, whatever blessings I can give to that, I give that to you. And, um, and uh, we're all on this together. And, and we all, I mean, to go back to something I, I said, like the mission of Chrysalis we discovered in our ninth year and it was to encourage the light within each child to shine brighter. And that unified the community mm. because every parent, every parent knows if their child's light is shining or not. And every parent wants it and it unifies the community. I mean, we got uh, conservative families and liberal families and, you know, every kind of polarizing possible factor is alive and well. And it, but that mission brings us together and it's the same in, in terms of, of we all want, to be good people. We all want to help the world be a better place. And, um, you know, to stay true to that and to see it in each other and nourish it in each other is, is important work. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. I, I expect that I will be spending 
many days alternating between reading the passages and roaming about drainage ditches and how to navigate by the various natural uh, patterns and, and moving into the Vermont woods. So um, I'll be thinking of you when I do. And I appreciate you so much for your wisdom and for the kind of uh, simplicity of presentation of what can often be very abstract and philosophical concepts. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the show. And um, uh, if you listener would like to listen or or to read Roaming, which I highly recommend, Roaming Upwards, um, I will include a link in the show notes. You can just jump directly from this podcast into reading the first section of that book. Um, So thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Daniel.